Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy. He's a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. We've been talking about well, continuing the conversation about immigration law, policy, and reform. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa. He's a professor. He's also the author of Josephus of Oz. And Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of several books. He's got one coming out this month. It's called How Everything Happened, Including Us. I haven't been able to order it yet, but I look forward to reading it. Look forward to talk to Larry today. It is uh, July the 8th and on this day in 1776, a 2,000-pound copper and tin bell, now known as the Liberty Bell, rang out from the tower of the Pennsylvania State House, now Independence Hall in Philadelphia, summoning citizens to the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence, Four days earlier, of course, the historic document had been adopted by the delegates to the Continental Congress, but the bell did not ring to announce the issue of the uh, document until the Declaration of Independence returned from the printer on July the 8th. How much we take for granted these days, huh? In 1751, to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of Pennsylvania's original constitution, the Pennsylvania Provincial Assembly ordered the bell to be constructed after being cracked during a test and then recast twice. The bell was hung from the State House steeple in June 1753. Run to call Pennsylvania Assembly together and to summon people for special announcements and events, it was also rung on important occasions such as King George III's 1763 ascension to the British throne and in 1765 to call the people together to discuss Parliament's controversial Stamp Act with the outbreak of the American Revolution and in April 1775 the bell was rung to announce the battles of Lexington and Concord its most famous tolling however was on July the 8th 1776 when it summoned Philadelphia citizens for the first reading of the Declaration of Independence As the British advanced toward Philadelphia in the fall of 1777, the bell was removed from the city and taken to Allentown, Pennsylvania to save it from being melted down by the British to be used for cannons. After the British defeat in 1781, the bell was returned to Philadelphia, which served as its nation's capital from 1790 to 1800. In addition, uh, it was, uh, let me see, in addition to marking important events, the bell tolled annually to celebrate George Washington's birthday on February the 22nd and the 4th of July. The name Liberty Bell was first coined in 1839 in a poem in an abolitionist pamphlet. The question of whether the Liberty Bell acquired its famous fracture has been the subject of a good deal of historical debate. In the most commonly accepted account, the bell suffered a major break while tolling for the funeral of the first Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall. In 1835 and in 1846, the crack expanded to its present size while in use to mark Washington's birthday 
After that date, it was regarded as unsuitable for ringing, but it's still ceremoniously tapped on occasion to commemorate important events. On June the 6th, 1944, when Allied forces invaded France, the sound of the bell's dulled ring was broadcast by radio across the United States. The Liberty Bell. I wonder if uh, Black Lives Matter would consider it to be a racist statue of some sort. In any event, we have 125 new cases of COVID-19 yesterday. The county's death toll remains at 85. Confirmed cases in Cuyahoga County now rose to 5,201. Out of 37,853 tests, that's about almost 14% of the population tested has coronavirus. A total of 378 people have been hospitalized with coronavirus, not because of it, but with it. And uh, we don't know how many have been released. But uh, on July 4th, 254 people died in the United States of coronavirus. That's nationwide, 254. That number went even lower on Sunday because on July 5th, just 209 people died nationwide of the coronavirus. These 254 deaths on Saturday and 209 deaths on Sunday represent a remarkable death rate of uh, 92.4% from the peak daily uh, reduction of uh, 92.4% from the peak of 2,749 set on April the 21st. Saturday and Sunday were also the two lowest days for number of deaths in the country from the coronavirus since March 23rd. Over the past week, coronavirus deaths represented roughly 6% of all deaths in this country, meaning 94% of the people in this country are dying of something else other than coronavirus. It's also important to note that there's a difference between dying with the coronavirus and dying of coronavirus. Virtually every person is dying with the coronavirus in this country, meaning those that are dying today have comorbidities, generally multiple comorbidities. So if you're dying with, say, stage 4 lung cancer and you also have the coronavirus, you're counted as a coronavirus death. Believe that or not, but it's true. Put simply, 7,500 people die in the United States every day. That's about 2.8 million every year. Even assuming the coronavirus deaths tally in the country are accurate, which they clearly are not, right now the coronavirus would represent about 4.6% of all deaths in this country in a year. Can you really justify shutting down the entire country uh, for something that increases the national mortality rate by under 5% a year. And that, of course, assumes that the national mortality rate in the country is even increasing at all, which it might not be the case. The national death rate from the coronavirus collapsing seems like a pretty massive story that the general public, which is overwhelmed with anxiety and fears, deserves to know. It especially seems like an important story. Even the national debate over whether kids should return to school, it should be included in that as well. Well, how can we make intelligent public policy decisions without the best possible data? Well, we can't. Which means the uh, media in this country is failing at their most basic responsibility, and that's informing the general public. My prediction is that you're not going to hear much about this at all in the country, and that's because most of the media don't share facts anymore. They just share emotional terror, call it fear porn, on steroids. And that's the scariest thing of all, much more terrifying than the coronavirus itself. So as you can see, the death rate is dropping substantially. Now, what, what do we hear about? We hear about, well, how the coronavirus is spreading. It's spreading among young people. They're asymptomatic, have mild uh, 
symptoms. I talked to uh, a, a friend of mine had coronavirus, and he apparently lost his sense of taste and smell for a couple of days, had a fever, and it went away. He was okay. He's uh, probably in his 50s or 60s, I would guess. So uh, the, the question is, uh, should we be fanning the fear, uh, flames of fear because of coronavirus? I suspect not. We should get it in perspective. And certainly I think the governor's made a great decision in opening our schools here in Florida. Well, President Trump has officially withdrawn the United States from the World Health Organization. Now, Senator Bob Menendez, he's a Democrat from New Jersey. Remember, he was indicted because of uh, being taking money, well, uh, actually taking favors and uh, tr plane trips and so forth. Well, anyhow, he, he was uh, found not guilty. But he tweeted Congress has received the notification Tuesday afternoon, and here's what he tweeted to call Trump's response to COVID chaotic and incoherent doesn't do it justice, Menendez tweeted. This won't protect American lives or interests. It leaves Americans sick and America alone. I'm not kidding. He really tweeted that. What a bozo. Democrats have criticized Trump's decision as harmful to the international effort to contain the virus. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said the WHO organizes the global fight against COVID-19 and pulling out of it is crippling the effort to beat the virus. Now, she really said that. Democrat Dick Durbin called it short-sighted as the U.S. continues to fight, see a rise in infections, America's uh, Trump's retreat from the WHO and the global effort to combat COVID-19 is short-sighted mistake, uh, Durbin said in a tweet. The U.S. should not turn its back on the international community to find treatments and vaccines that we all desperately seek. Now, just keep in mind, well, here's what, I, I like this one. Representative James Comer, he's a Republican from Kentucky, he echoed some of the president's complaints about the WHO and its relationship with China. He said, this is simple, China lied. The WHO complied and Americans died. Withdrawing the United States from the World Health Organization was the right decision until the WHO undergoes some serious reforms that doesn't deserve our money or our membership, Comer tweeted. I like that. In any event, of course, now Trump is taking bold action here, and I think it's the right thing to do. It's certainly a wake-up call, isn't it? Then we, we send him a half a billion dollars a year to fund them, and uh, that uh, the WHO president covered it up. Uh, for China, uh, so that uh, led to the infection, I think, of people here in the United States. Well, Democrat Minnesota Representative Elon Omar called for the dismantling of the U.S. economy and political system yesterday. As long as our economy and political systems prioritize profit without considering who is profiting, who is being shut out, we will perpetuate this inequality, she said. We cannot stop at criminal justice system. We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression wherever we find it. That's called systematic uh, racism. She just finds fault with you, and we just need to dismantle everything. She's calling for anarchy. Now, mind you, this woman, uh, she uh, pledged her commitment to the Constitution of the United States. So I just don't know how you square that up, how you call for this dismantling of everything with uh, pledging your allegiance and, uh, and your oath of office to the Constitution. I think she's treasonous. I really do. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website 
is NaplesIllustrated.com. Coming up, we're going to visit with Bob Levy. Bob is a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Gulf Shore Playhouse, devoted to creating professional New York-style theater at its very best and at affordable prices, presents a fabulous new season of productions beginning in November. Well, here we are. I was on air, off air talking with Bob Levy and lost track of time. So <laughs> welcome back to the Bob Harden Show, brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and also author of Josephus of Oz. Right now, we have with us Bob Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you. Thank you, Bob. Can you tell us about the Cato Institute? We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. Now, I want to pick up on this conversation we've been having about immigration policy reform and law and so forth. The president insists that a wall at our southern border is necessary. Can he build it by declaring a national emergency? Well, the, the act, the 1976 National Emergency Act, gives him authority to declare an emergency a year at a time virtually, based on virtually any security-related rationale. But the act limits what powers he can invoke after he declares uh, the emergency. So he's relying on language that authorizes military construction. Uh, there's some question whether such construction uh, to qualify as military has to be in support of a military undertaking, um, and that's being debated, and it's marinating through the court system. Um, Congress could have overrided, uh, overridden the declaration, but the president could have vetoed um, the override. Mm -hmm. And Congress, of course, always has the option to refuse to appropriate funds. So if Congress did so, um, uh, Trump would be forced to reallocate, as he has done, some already appropriated money. And that would cause some heated objections from whoever's losing uh, the funding. So we don't know the answer to all these questions. They're still percolating uh, in the court system. So interesting. So what would the courts likely say about all this? Well, there, there are a number of possible challenges. Um, even under 
even if the courts are deferential to the president, which they usually are, um, they could argue that there simply is no emergency. Um, they could argue that the act, the National Emergency Act, is unconstitutional because it impermissibly de- delegates legislative power to the president. Uh, they could argue that the act uh, permits military construction, but the wall is not military. Uh, and they could argue that to the extent that he's using funds that haven't been appropriated or were appropriated for a different purpose, uh, he'd be intruding on Congress's uh, power of the purse. Now, the courts, as you know, are usually deferential to the president on any national security uh, uh, issues. Whether they are this time, we just don't know. Uh, Checks and balances are central to constitutional government, and courts are the only check when when Congress delegates, as it has done, nearly boundless power uh, to the president. So the, the precedent set by this unilateral declaration of what some people consider to be a non-emergency would be highly worrisome. And that's why there even some Republicans, even some who favor a wall, mm-hmm. are still opposed to invoking this National Emergency Act. And they question whether or not uh, the wall qualifies as as military uh, construction. And then, of course, there is the question of um, how do you get the land to build the wall, and usually it's done by eminent domain. And the Emergency Act does not authorize the use of funds for eminent domain. So there are a number of open questions. We still don't know uh, all the answers. Hey, how about that? That is an interesting question. How, how did he get the land? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they take it under the Fifth Amendment power of <laughs> eminent domain, and they have to pay, of course, just compensation. So uh, okay, so that all happened then as, as a result of, of what's going on here. So can Trump use his national security powers to stop the asylum seekers from Central America? Well, the federal law says anybody who reaches U.S. soil can apply for asylum no matter how or where they uh, arrived. So Trump claimed uh, these emergency national security powers to turn back the asylum seekers unless they were processed through a legal um, point of entry, um, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal blocked that program, and um, in February uh, of this year, temporarily blocked uh, a revised program by Trump that would have made asylum seekers remain in Mexico um, <clears throat> until uh, until they could be processed. Uh, the, S- the Supreme Court in March. Uh, allowed this remain in Mexico policy to continue, um, but you know neither neither of these policies really address the underlying problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congress is the problem, and unless Congress changes our asylum laws, mm-hmm. we plainly need more capacity to process and interview and judge and detain and deport uh, those who don't uh, don't qualify. So Congress has been uh, derelict. Now there is this late update uh, June of uh, just a month ago uh, the Trump administration had asked the Supreme Court for immediate authority to deny asylum to Central Americans who didn't first seek asylum or in Mexico or one of the countries that they passed through on the way to the United States and a federal court uh, in, in fact a Trump appointee in Washington DC invalidated that policy not necessarily on the merits but mm-hmm. because Trump hadn't complied with the rulemaking requirements of the Administrative uh, Procedures Act. So it's it's still up 
happen here? It's complicated. Boy, we just need to go through and get our immigration law all straightened out. And unfortunately, we're not going to see that any in the next in the near future, I'm sure. That, that's exactly right. Congress is really the source of this problem. It has abdicated its responsibility, turned over a lot of power to the executive. And then, of course, the executive gets criticized for exercising uh, that power. But in fact, the root cause is Congress, which delegated the power to the president in the first place. It's Congress's responsibility to legislate and not the president. Mm, so let's turn to birthright citizenship. Tell us about the so-called anchor baby question. Well, we're talking about the doctrine that says anybody born here is automatically a U.S. citizen. And uh, under the common law, uh, birthright citizenship was granted to everybody except slaves and Indians. Uh, the Dred Scott decision uh, finally said uh, said that uh, blacks were not citizens, even if they were free. But then we had the 14th Amendment in 1868, which overturned uh, Dred Scott. Mm-hmm. So that presumably addressed uh, the slave problem. And then a half century later, 1924, uh, Indians were granted citizenship by statute, not by constitution, but by statute. So interesting. So uh, what does the 14th Amendment say about citizenship? Well, it says that the, the relevant provision is that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and, and this is the key phrase, subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens. So the framers added that phrase, subject to the jurisdiction, so they could deny citizenship to two groups. The first was children of foreign diplomats, and the second was children of enemy forces mm-hmm. uh, who were engaged in a hostile occupation of the United States. Uh, so even if those folks had kids here, uh, those kids would not be entitled to citizenship because they would not be subject to our uh, jurisdiction. But the question is whether or not Congress intended that children of permanent legal residents would be citizens. And the court, the Supreme Court, in, a, in an 1898 case called U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark, said yes, children of permanent legal residents, if they were born here, would automatically uh, be citizens. Wow. So what about temporary residents and illegal aliens? Well, the principle is less clear with respect to the temporary uh, residents, uh, like students and, and tourists, and it's even murkier with respect to illegal aliens. So that they and their children are subject to our laws and can be prosecuted and convicted if they violate our law. So a natural reading of the phrase subject to our jurisdiction suggests that their children are citizens if they're born here. Uh, On the other hand, uh, the 14th Amendment's uh, uh, framers um, almost certainly did not uh, intend uh, for birthright citizenship to apply to illegal uh, immigrants. And in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, there were no illegal immigrants because we had no law that restricted uh, immigration. So subject to our jurisdiction probably meant some primary allegiance to the United States as sovereign and acceptance of the U.S. and not some other country as the principal uh, lawgiver. So interesting. Bob Levy, again, the chairman of the Cato Institute. I encourage you to visit Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. But I want to pick up the conversation next week. I just genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us.
Always a pleasure, Bob. Good to be with you. Thank you so much, Bob. All right, coming up, I'm gonna be we're gonna be visiting with Andrew Joppa. He's a professor. He's also the author of Josephus of Oz. We're gonna do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I think uh, I got cut off the commercial break last time, so I do want to mention Lulabee's Diner, which is located right there in the Green Tree Shopping Center. They do a great job, breakfast and lunch. In fact, our next guest and I meet there on occasion just to talk about the current world crisis and what's going on. But uh, Lulabee's Diner, I hope you will give them a try. Breakfast and lunch right there in the Green Tree Shopping Center. Uh, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston Space Architecture. Right now, we have with us Andy Joppa. Andy is a pre- professor. He's also the author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Bob. I'd like to mention that Lula Bees, that's such a friendly place that they tipped me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, let's <laughs> let's move on. And, she'll, she'll love that. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, uh, you're from the New York area. I know you spent time in New York City, and we're seeing such an increase in violence and death there as a result of what's happened. Any comments and thoughts? Well, I've, I'm a New York City guy. I was born about 200 yards out of New York City, so not quite a city resident, but I spent a lot of my, my life in the city. I love Broadway. I've always loved Broadway. 
Um, it's always been a safe place. It might have been a corrupt place. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at the uh, Armstrong hearings in the mid-70s and the early 70s. And, but I, back during my younger, wilder days, I used to go drinking in Harlem, uh, a place called the Palms on 125th Street. No problems whatsoever. Uh, I watched Giuliani come in after the Dinkins administration and uh, imp- implement policies that save perhaps 85% of the uh, the murders in the black community. Uh, brought it down from, I think the numbers were like from 3,500 down to 550, something something in those in those areas. Remarkable saving of life. If we look right now at New York City with uh, de Blasio the, the, taking away a billion dollars from uh, from the police, which actually amounts to $20,000 per policeman, uh, if you would figure it out, per policeman. And then you have Cy Vance in the DA's office who wants to release everyone without uh, without any bail. That includes the rioters. Uh, they've turned New York City into a free fire zone. I, I doubt uh, Broadway will come back, not just because of COVID-19, although that has been a problem, uh, but because I think New York City has been turned into a place that is is not safe is not family-friendly, and I do not think that uh, New York City can recover from what is going on right now. Now, It's such a sad commentary. That combined with the fact that people are leaving uh, cities, uh, I think genuinely as a result of this coronavirus, we're seeing people kind of leave large metropolitan areas for uh, safer places uh, outside of the city. So uh, it's kind of a double whammy for New York. I don't know if the number is accurate, but I have read where 500,000 people have left New York City in the past two years, middle-class people, uh, as a a derivative of the policies of the political forces in New York City. That number sounds awfully high to me, but that is the number that I've been hearing. Uh, So that city, uh, if you add in the state taxes of of New York State, you add in the the danger level for for people and their families, uh, it is not a, a friendly uh, a user-friendly place to be at this point, Bob. Uh, no, no, no doubt about that. Well, we're seeing the continuation of violence and Black Lives Matter, and uh, what's been going on uh, around the, the country, quite frankly, mainly in in uh, blue states and blue uh, cities, where the mayors or the uh, representatives are are uh, Democrat. Any thoughts? Well, let me just prime the pump for something that lies ahead between me and you and some of my writing, but. I'm working up a position that suggests that America cannot stay in this current configuration. It's impossible to believe that the blue and red states will reach accommodation where there'll be some civility that will will prevail. So I'm working up a model, Bob, a political model that will be similar similar to the Articles of Confederation, where each state becomes completely independent and autonomous, and they have a loose confederation that of a central government uh, that supplies uh, the uh, the things that only a f- uh, federal government can supply, uh, national defense and so forth, uh, building roads. But again, it returns to an autonomous state model. I'm not quite convinced I want to be there even, but I do think something has to be considered mm-hmm. in terms of this ongoing uh, divisiveness between uh, between the states. It cannot be resolved in the current model, so uh, I don't know if I'm quite there yet, but I think we have to give some thoughts to where we might be going uh, as we see the violence and we see the disruption and we see the the absolute difference between a, a, a generally red state such as Florida and a blue state such as New York. Bob. Well, of course, uh, Florida is not necessarily red. I mean, currently it is uh, has a, a, the uh, representatives, the legislature, as well as the governor. Uh, they are uh, 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 Republicans, but uh, a lot of Democrats in 
in Florida. So uh, we're fortunate to be I governed. Was being, I was being optimistic when I said Florida. But, so. <laughs> okay. But it's I, I take it when you make these comments, you're not talking about throwing out the Constitution. You're talking about strengthening states' rights and the resolve to protect themselves from... Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I think we still have to be bound by the, uh, the individual rights that are protected within the Bill of Rights. I think we still have to recognize that those are inalienable uh, and are uh, binding on, on all of us. But I think the states have to uh, reassume the, uh, a stronger role within the concept of federalism. And if we don't, if, if the states cannot define the nature of the life and the culture of the people living in it, then I, I, I don't see how we can resolve this, uh, this incredible divide that uh, has been pushed on us by, uh, by people who are essentially anti-American. Well, the one way to do it, of course, is to elect a Republican House legislature uh, as well as Senate and, and uh, re-elect Trump, I think that would go a long way to get rid of some of the background noise that we have going on now. Well, I mean, those are true things, and like many true things, they have to happen. It's, so, let, you know, let's see. Certainly that would be a, a step forward. But if we look at the number of leftists that are being turned out of our uh, advanced educational institutions, uh, you look at the media support uh, almost in total for uh, what I would call totalitarian socialism, uh, I, I, you know, I, I am dubious about that being a, uh, a cure. I, I certainly would like to believe that that will happen. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't think it's a permanent cure. I think it would be a Band-Aid. Uh, we have such major cultural variations right now that I do not see how that can be resolved merely by acts of Congress. And uh, that presumes that Congress will have the courage to act. And yeah. I have not seen any of that at all, Bob. So interesting. Andy, by the way, I want to mention to our listeners that I posted three of your columns. And Andy is prolific, uh, writes commentary. Uh, prolific commentary, and it's really terrific. It's posted on my website. You can find it on the tab, correct me if I'm wrong. You'll find uh, Andy's latest three columns, as well as the past columns as well. Andy, want to continue the conversation? Can you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For the best in food and drink as well as great live entertainment, go to the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar. Formerly known as Weekend Willie's, the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar has terrific new local owners offering a great new upscale decor and a fabulous new menu. Linda and I are weekly regulars to hear live blues, but you can stop by anytime for great food and drink, to watch your favorite sporting event, or to hear great live entertainment five nights a week. The Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar is located at 5310 Shirley Street, just off Pine Ridge Road, and it's open from 11 a.m. until close every day. Visit the website dogtoothnaples.com or call 431-7004. That's 431-7004. I hope we'll see you there. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House 
House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, never mind the savings of money. You can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. Coming up, I'm going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now, we continue the conversation with Professor Andrew Joppa, also author of Josepha Savaz. Andy, again, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be with you, Bob. So, Andy, uh, you know, I've been hearing a lot of interesting uh, voices about what's happening in America right now, many of them black. I mean, uh, Leo Terrell comes to mind uh, immediately, but interesting comments from people who are, are making statements that are contrary to what you typically hear. Well, last week, Bob, we talked about some of the black intellectuals, which tend to be totally ignored by the media and by much of the black community. Uh, but this past week, I've become very aware that the, the major voices in, in pushing back against what's happening in America, pushing back against Black Lives Matter, pushing back against disruption of the black family, have been the voices of black males. I have not heard anyone in the white political, white male political arena doing anything of, of the uh, the strength and the courage that these, uh, these words have taken. Just for example, Bob, I, I heard Bob Woodson, a former civil rights leader, talking about there is no systemic racism in America. They made that point loud and clear. Uh, Jason Whitlock of ESPN uh, uh, defined Black Lives Matter as a, as a Marxist political organization. Uh, Terry Crews, an actor, was on with Don Lemon the other night, and he said he doesn't like black people or white people. He likes good people, and that's where he, he has his friends, and that's who he, he links up with. Of course, Don Lemon, being the, uh, the, the minimal brain power that he has, pushed back against that. But Crews <laughs> took that, that role on. Stephen Smith at ESPN also at commented on the NFL, uh, cowardly surrendering uh, to Black Lives Matter. Uh, in addition, I, I didn't mention Alan West, who I know you're aware of, former congressman, yep. uh, the state senator from Arizona, Walter Blackman was on, a brilliant, a brilliant man. Uh, Dr. Wilfred Riley of uh, Kentucky State University, Herman Cain, who was a prominent uh, ex-presidential candidate, Walter Williams, who you mentioned last week, but Walter Williams uh, uh, published a, a major article on the disruption of the black family, and, and of course the ongoing comments of Larry Elder. Uh, there's uh, ten names, perhaps, Bob, uh, uh, all uh, front and center in terms of the, the public debate, all making comments uh, requiring courage, uh, and i just like to see the white political community, particularly, uh, particularly the white males in Congress, doing something that is comparable, but I have not seen uh, much of that. Uh, very seldom have I heard anyone in the in that population in Congress offering the pushback that I think is required at this point. Well, let me push back a little bit, if I may, Andy, because uh, I don't know that there are voices, in it, and you're right, there is an absent, a conspicuous absence of those voices in the media. But it makes me wonder if perhaps those voices are out there, but they're not. it's not being published, it's not being promoted. Black Lives Matter, of course, is being promoted. 
Well, there's no doubt that the media does not give any play to uh, these comments that are antagonistic to Black Lives Matter or the uh, or the uh, the uh, the required position that must be taken for uh, to be a considered a woke citizen of America, as they would have it. But again, if we're looking at uh, these black men that I alluded to, they're on television. They're they're in written commentary. So I I found them quite easily. I, I, yeah. I was exposed to their words quite easily. So. Um, I'd like to believe that there's a lot of good white politicians, male politicians out there that are that are doing their job. But um, obviously, there's a certain amount of suppression. But I think it's it's cowardice. They they're terrified of being labeled a racist that uh, by Black Lives Matter or any of the black activist groups. So yeah, that's, uh, I just that's want a to great encourage people to do their job. Yeah, that's a great point because I'm I'm sure there is a degree of intimidation right now because you uh, when you're faced with violence and this uh, structural or uh, institutional racism, there is no solution. You can't fix things. I mean, Elon Omar just commented before we brought you on the show. I mean, she she actually is calling for for the complete replacement, destruction of the of the institutions that exist in America because they are flawed and rotten to the core, as something to that effect. The the point being is you can't you can't if you, you listen to them and try to accommodate their needs. There is nothing to accommodate except for replacing the American system, and you can't do that. These people are looking for annihilation. They're looking for anarchy. They're looking for destruction of the American way of life, and we can't accommodate it. We need to resist it. Well, I, I hope that resistance um, gets carried up to and including law and law enforcement, Bob, because, again, it's reached the point where I, I don't think we can just sit back and have a, uh, a simple uh, dialogue or a debate because there is no uh, forum for that. Right. Uh, I think if we look at what the FBI has done in terms of Black Lives Matter, they have been derelict in their duty. I think that indicates to me with the lack of FBI response to uh, Black Lives Matter calling for um, uh, they're instigating riots, calling for violence, calling for the death of police, uh, instigating the violence, or being collusive with it in the, in the large cities. And the FBI has essentially done nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the if Black Lives Matter could be challenged legally now, certainly I, I don't want anything to be uh, illegally uh, uh, oppressive to these people. But on the other hand, when people are instigating violence and calling for the death of human beings, uh, and the FBI sits back and does nothing, that gives them a free reign, a free run at, at the rest of us. Yeah. So if we could eliminate Black Lives Matter as a major political force, it would free up, I think, a lot of people who are intimidated by Black Lives Matter. It would free up many of our schools to have better curriculums right now. Uh, many schools are, are in, incorporating Black Lives Matter uh, platform positions, which uh, includes, and many of the, the black men are pushing back against Black Lives Matter because uh, they advocate for the what they call the to disrupt or the disruption of the Western prescribed nuclear family. They call for the disruption, disrupt, destruction, I would call it, of the nuclear family. Yeah. And if we look at the outcome of the single parent black family, uh, which is the major problem that uh, that exists in the black community, the single parent family. All negative statistics uh, accelerate dramatically by factors of two, three, five, or, or ten times their, uh, their amounts in a two-parent family. So if we could get rid of these pressures, if we can get rid of the uh, Black Lives Matter instigating for the disruption of black culture, 
uh, and the disruption of, of all life in America, I think we could go a long way towards solving many of our problems. Yeah, well, you know, and to do that, you just got to follow the money. Who's funding all this? And uh, you know, I think you're going to find George Soros-type f- uh, organizations. You can't necessarily trace it to him, but he's funded a lot of the organizations that are providing the money to allow this to happen. They they got captains that are recruiting young college kids or whatever it might be, fanning the flames of uh, instigating uh, the, the thoughts about a socialist republic and overthrowing America. So they get the, the, these thoughts going with these people. And then uh, this this is what it leads to. And then, to back to your point, you have elected officials who are funded by George Soros types of organizations running for district attorneys. They're getting elected because of the funding. And they, their platform is, I'm not going to enforce the law. Well, you have it all over the United States right now. And some of these district attorneys, for example, said if you steal something in a, in a grocery store, you just, if it's less than $300, we're not going to do anything about it. So what does that lead to? Breaking? Uh, to well, I, I heard, I think it was in New York, perhaps, I'm not remembering this correctly, where a, an assault on the police will be dropped from a felony charge to a misdemeanor. Yeah. Uh, unbe- Can you imagine? A, a, unbelievable. An assault on a policeman would be a, a misdemeanor. It's just unconscionable. So, I mean, again, if what's your point? If you really want to get rid of Black, Black Lives Matter, which, by the way, they're not, they can care less about black people. What they want is anarchy. Uh, if you want to get rid of uh, this type of violence and looting and what's going on, you need to follow the money. And hopefully the Justice Department will do that. And I think that sometimes the, the wheels of justice grind slow, but I think they grind fine. I hope they're on to the scent of what's going on here. Now, you're such a wonderfully chronicle, a cr- chronic optimist, Bob. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, by the way, you're talking about the, the uh, somewhat undefined areas of funding for Black Lives Matter, but we can look for the uh, the public funding that comes from uh, from corporate funding, which is, you know, a, a large amount of money goes from, uh, from corporations directly into Black Lives Matter. So, yes, there is that large amount of uh, undefined uh, monies that flow into Black Lives Matter, but much of it is has a, a strong corporate face, uh, and I think it's uh, it's it's their fear also. They're they're terrified of having Black Lives Matter uh, in some way boycott their company or boycott their products. Uh, I've even heard recently that uh, Tucker Carlson, you know, who most of us most of us admire for his courage, one of the few people out there who really seems to uh, uh, speak the truth, uh, and yet I hear his job may be in jeopardy because of pressures uh, based on. Uh, advertisers who are dropping away from the show. If it wasn't for Mike Lindell and his My Pillow, I don't think Tucker Carlson would be on the air at this point. Oh, that's so interesting. Tucker Carlson is the voice. You'd mentioned white vo- uh, voices out there. Well, he is that. He he speaks with such courage. We, I just will not miss his show because he's always on point with what's going on in the United States. Just genuinely appreciate him, and I appreciate well, I heard his name. Be- I'm sorry about that. No, I was going to say I appreciate you too, Andy, because I, I think your commentary is so spot on, and you do a great job. I just genuinely appreciate you taking time to come on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. And by the way, his book is Josephus of Oz, off point for today's discussion, but well worth investigating and reading. It's, it's a great read. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the uh, University of Houston in space architecture. His scientific inquiry has led him to several worries. He's written several books. Uh, his latest is Cyber Warfare, Targeting America, Our Infrastructure, and Future, and a new book coming out, which I'm really looking forward to reading, How Everything Happened, Including Us. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> 
Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulubee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. You can visit the website to get tickets right now at gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston Space Architecture. He's also the author of several books. Uh, My favorite about climate change is Scared Witless, the Prophets and Prophets of Climate Doom. Uh, And I just really encourage you to read that. The next one coming out is How Everything Happened, Including Us, uh, and before that, Cyber Warfare, which is a great read as well. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure, Professor. Well, you're also writing a weekly and sometimes bi-weekly, every uh, couple of columns a week, a column on point in Newsmax.com, and it's a terrific read. encourage our listeners to go to newsmax.com and check out your column but one is democrats put politics over police reforms this is such an important topic maybe you can tell us about it yeah uh you know with all the of course the chaos over over the police right now and and i think a lot of this is completely politically contrived and uh you know, it's it's pretty egregious what, what we're seeing going on in the country right now. Uh, as per usual, it seems the Democrats are playing politics with this big time. I don't frankly see how they, I don't understand how they see it as a winning thing because I think people really care about their security, both with regard to their, you know, their pension plans and the economy, but also certainly their 
personal security in their homes and so on. But police reform and all the defund police craziness we've been hearing is has been you know has been a, you know in the media constantly. And uh, and Tim Scott in, in uh, South Carolina is a black black senator and Democrat uh, Republican rather, and he's been working for a very long time on police reform and was working, you know, on, on, on legislation, sensible legislation. And and he was working with uh, both both sides of the, of the, uh, of the Senate, both the, the Republicans and the Democrats and pretty come, come pretty close to crafting something that everybody could agree with. And they're just that common sense things about, you know, reform issues that, you know, you know, the had to do with chokeholds and had to do with a lot of the other, the other issues, and then pretty much had it ready to wrap up. And then it was blocked by Schumer and Pelosi, of course, as you as per usual, and uh, and he claimed it was a bad bill and so on, and it just disrupted it. And you'd say, well, why would they do that? Mm-hmm. You know, why would they? They wouldn't even. Not only wouldn't they vote on the bill, they wouldn't allow it to come up for a vote. Or discussion. And, uh, or discussion. Or I mean, the, the, yeah. The, and, they, and, they could debate the issues uh, and uh, somehow kind of cobble together something that was uh, work for, for both parties. and uh, But they refused to even allow the debate. Well, you know, it was uh, clear. And, and, and Tim Scott said, you know, they were so close... There's some. There was, a, you know, one issue that had to do with liability issues. If you know, it would allow police to be sued by, you know, by criminals, and a lot of criminals, are, of course, are very willing to sue the police, mm-hmm. which would force police to have liability insurance, which they can't afford, like doctors. And that, you know, that was a, that was that was something that wasn't going to, you know, get much traction because. Uh, Police are not well paid. You know, they're not. They don't get rich, and they can't afford this kind of insurance. And so, it's just a bait, really, to get them. You know, again, you know, it just caused more of them to to resign and and get out of the out of policing. But but it's just another example. Also, you have to understand, and we have to understand that most of the policies that have to do with policing are taken care of at the you know state, you know, county, city levels. Mm-hmm. Where they come up, you know, they're they're the ones that fund ninety percent of the of the of the police operations, and they're the ones that establish these individual policies and practices and so on. So, federal government really doesn't have that much of a role. I mean, they can offer guidance, but it's really it comes down to the uh, you know the you know the state you know and uh, local regional groups that. So it's it's just become a big, uh, I think, a big uh, political, you know, game, and and you hate games being played with something as important as police. You know, they're so they're so demoralized. You know, they with defunding and all this other stuff. They're right. they're they're resigning. They're leaving in, in droves. They're not going to. Uh, it's not something that's going to attract many many young. You know the better people that you really want. No, that's exactly right. 
No, that's exactly right. And unfortunately, this is Trump derangement syndrome. This, in my opinion, is only to try and avoid uh, the opportunity for Trump the Democrats trying to avoid Trump taking credit for a law for a, a police reform, and uh, so they're going to sit on their hands. And to your point, just allow deterioration of morale in police departments. I mean, community policing is such an important part of the job, where they're just be developing relationships in the community. You know, with morale, how does that happen? Uh, it's to me, this is so destructive, Professor. And it's just uh, really, I, I'm just really pleased that you uh, are drawing attention to this. Well, as I wrote another article, you mentioned that earlier this week. I've been writing, like a fiend, I've been writing three articles a week, but one on, on really the, it has to do with the um, abandonment of cities. You know, there, there's a big exodus going on now from New York and a lot of the major cities. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them are Democrat-controlled. And, you know, part of it is the coronavirus, and, of course, the, the lockdown and economic problems, but I think there's an awful in outsourcing of businesses with distance, you know, telework and so on, but but it's really going to be expedited because I think of a sense of insecurity, you know, people don't feel safe even going to cities now, you know, with the, uh, you know, the, the pervasive drug issues and homeless issues and so on, but but now with, with you know, defunding the police and the, and the escalating uh, statistics in terms of, you know, murders and and robberies and and so on, just bedlam and disorder. That it's just going to force more and more people to go to move out to the suburbs and rural areas and to, with telework that's that's possible. But there, how in the world the Democrats can see this as a winning a winning strategy? I just can't figure it out. I I, I think that. Mm. Hopefully, when people get in their voting booths, they say, you know, what do I care most about? Well, I care about the future. I care about my kids. I care about, you know, our safety, our home, and I care about our economy. So, so I, I have no idea what they think they're going to, how they think they're going to... Uh, no, I can't either, Professor. I mean, you think, what's what's this October surprise going to be? I have no idea, because there always is one, of, of course. But right now, you have uh, Joe Biden running for president right now, who can't cobble together a sentence or a paragraph, quite frankly. I don't know how they expect him to uh, to win the election and you know, to debate by President Donald Trump. But uh, it is, it's... Uh, our only hope, I think, is the uh, November 3rd, the election coming up and and being able to bring back President Donald Trump and perhaps support him with a uh, Senate and uh, uh, House that uh, support his his uh, focus on making America great again. Well, I don't think anyone really imagines that Biden's going to be in charge of anything. He's, you know, they're going to, Bernie Sanders and Black Lives Matter are going to shape the platform for the, you know, for the Democrats and then. Yeah, you know his his running mate, you know his his vice president will be the uh, obvious heir apparent, and and uh, but you know the fact that he, the guy is you you don't know where he stands on anything, and when he does stand on something, is usually a place you don't want to be. So right, that, so yeah. it's it, you don't have a you don't have a credible candidate in terms of leadership, and and uh, and this this and you. Uh, you can't possibly imagine that he's going to be able to uh, deflect 
all of the pressure from the left, and it's going to be the Green New Deal and defund the police and everything. Yeah, uh, it's not a not a winning uh, picture. Not at all. Again, uh, Professor Larry Bell. Uh, Endowed professor at the University of Houston. Again, right now available, Cyber Warfare, Targeting America, Our Infrastructure, and Our Future. It's a great read, a scary read, quite frankly. Uh, also, uh, on point is the column in Newsmax.com. Check it out. Professor, always appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. Bob, thank you again. My pleasure indeed. Uh, very smart man. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I genuinely appreciate uh, your listening. Tell your friends if you enjoy it, uh, because we're working to organically grow the show. Uh, tune in tomorrow. We're going to visit with Keith Flaw, the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Byron Donalds, our state representative and candidate for U.S. Congress, will be with us. Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. And former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett, always appreciate his insight on what's happening locally. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs>